Today, we're sponsored by the Children's Book Podcast, featuring insightful and sincere interviews with authors, illustrators, and everyone involved in taking a book from drawing board to bookshelf. I'm the host of the Children's Book Podcast, so you've come to know my voice here on Kidlit these days. But uh, the other podcast that I've been running, the Children's Book Podcast, has over 500 episodes to choose from over the past six years. And there's an interview and a book connection for everyone. You can learn about crafting story with Newbery winner Katie Camillo, learn about expressing through poetry with Nikki Grimes, or finding quiet spaces with picture book legend Tommy DePaula. You can connect with history and heritage through poems with Margarita Engel, or see how to see readers with Kwame Alexander. Find your next book to love with the Children's Book Podcast, found on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of Kidlet These Days, a Book Riot podcast. Kidlet These Days is your Kidlet connoisseurs, pairing the best of children's literature with what's going on in the world today. I'm Karina Yen Glazer, alongside Matthew Winner, and we are here to have conversations that create opportunities for parents, grandparents, teachers, librarians, and all who love children's books to engage in the world through literature in a deeper and broader way. We are recording on July 3rd, 2019. Matthew, did you did I tell you that I was seeing Harry Potter and the Cursed Child? <laughs> you did, and I cannot believe we have waited until on air to get my reaction to this, because I've been freaking <laughs> out about it. Karina, I've been telling people that you are going to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Please tell me, was it was it what you expected it would be? Well, I purposely did not look up anything about this musical or this play, and um, I didn't look at the book. I didn't look at anything. So I just went in not knowing anything, and I think that's sort of the best way to see it, just not really knowing what to expect. It was really amazing. Like The special effects were very cool, and the things that they did on stage were pretty awesome. So I would suggest try to trying to get a ticket if you can. My friend, I was telling my friend about this, and she's a huge Harry Potter fan, and she was saying that she was going to London, and she was asking if I thought she should go and see it in London. And I was like, yes, definitely. If you're in London, you can see it in London. That would be really cool. (laughs) So, yes, uh, I highly recommend it. It was a very, very cool experience. It was broken into two days, correct? Yes, two days. So I think there are some options where you can see both on the same day with a break in the middle. But yes, it's quite long. So you definitely have to be prepared for that. And um, yeah, it's definitely a time investment. But did it did everyone wear their house colors? Well, you know what, I didn't see a ton of people wearing um, like special outfits or anything. But there were a lot of interesting things in the theater. I saw it in New York City. So, like, they had um, this section with the house flags where you could take – you can pull out your house flag and take a photo with it. And just different, like, um, photo opportunities. And the stage in New York was specially renovated for this show. So, like, the carpet has – um, Harry Potter emblems on it, and it's 
um, it's it's like a full experience being in there, and it's very beautifully done. The theater, the space itself, was very cool, and to see how they used it for the play was really neat. No, well, that is awesome. Well, yeah. While you were in New York seeing Harry Potter, I went to <laughs> ALA in DC and got to record a bunch of live children's book podcast episodes and Ooh, awesome. got to meet a whole bunch of cool people. And I actually was able to attend the Newberry Caldecott banquet where Ooh, the, awesome. the winners give the speeches and hearing Meg Medina uh, talk about so Mercy Suarez. Oh my oh word, my it was gosh. amazing. She's so amazing. I love Meg Medina. I'm so happy for her. That's uh, I need to read her her speech, which they publish on Hornbook, right? They do. Why don't yeah. we put it in the show notes, the speeches for the Caldecott and Newberry winners, because you can you can read them, and they also recorded the 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 speeches being given, and they're fantastic. They'll make you weep and make you feel inspired and, you know, restore all confidence in children's literature. It's really, it was really quite a night. Yay. Well, before we get into our episode, let me... Um, introduce our next sponsor. So this podcast is sponsored by the new graphic novel, Cheshire Crossing. Best-selling author Andy Weir and acclaimed illustrator Sarah Anderson have created a new graphic novel starring Alice from Wonderland, Wendy from Neverland, and Dorothy from Oz, who meet at Cheshire Crossing, a boarding school for girls with special powers. But their class-cutting hijinks accidentally Bring together the villainous Wicked Witch and Captain Hook. Can the trio stop them before it's too late? It's a breakneck, inventive journey that Kirkus Reviews calls in a starred review, Deliciously Funny. Cheshire Crossing is available in bookstores and online. Okay, well, Matthew and I are very excited about today's episode. We are going to be talking about Trailblazers and Kidlet. Now, as an author of color myself, I know I take for granted all the children's book creators that have come before me and who paved the way for increased diversity in our community, which is why I'm incredibly excited to have Linda Sue Park join us today to recognize some of the first authors of color to have their books traditionally published. Now, Linda Sue is my personal hero. Her books have been so important to me, and I am incredibly grateful for her wisdom and for all the ways she gives to the Kidlet community. Let me tell you a little bit more about her. Linda Sue Park is the author of more than two dozen books for young readers, including picture books, middle grade books, and young adult novels, short stories, and poetry. Among her titles are the 2002 Newbery Medal winner, A Single Shard, and the New York Times bestseller, A Long Walk to Water. Her most recent picture book is Gondra's Treasure, which was released in April of this year. Linda Sue is honored to serve on the advisory boards of We Need Diverse Books, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, and the Rabbit Hole National Children's Literature Museum Project. She has also served as a panelist for several literary awards, including the National Book Award, the Kirkus Prize, the Penn Naylor Fellowship, and the SCBWI Golden Kite Awards. Please enjoy our interview with Linda Sue Park. Just one quick note, Linda Sue will be bringing up a lot of children's book creators. We'll be putting all of their names in the show notes in case you want to look them up later. And after the interview, Matthew and I will book talk as many books as we have time for by the authors mentioned by Linda Sue. So today we are so happy to have Linda Sue Park on the podcast. And a few months ago, Linda Sue... Um, was on Twitter and I was scrolling through Twitter and 
I um, was reading a little bit of what she was saying about um, diverse creators and children's books, and I was very intrigued by what she said, and I invited her here to read that blog post um, that was on Twitter, and then we are going to talk a little bit about some book recommendations and do some book talking. So, Linda Sue, thank you for being here. So excited. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Um, I titled this blog post, Standing on Shoulders. As a lot of us know uh, the expression that, you know, you achieve something because you stand on the shoulders of those who came before you. I should have the source of that quote, but I don't. Um, It's old. You can Google it. But that's why I titled this blog post, Standing on Shoulders. Here's something I often hear from diverse creators. I'm writing books for kids because when I was little, I never saw myself in books. I want to make sure every child has the chance to see themselves in a book. Sound familiar? The inspiration is a noble one, and I couldn't be more excited about the work being produced these days by writers from marginalized communities. It's a challenging, tumultuous, and exciting time in the world of children's books. When I hear something like the above, I can certainly relate. There were so few books featuring Asian or Asian American characters when I was growing up in the 1960s and early 70s. But, and this is important, there were people doing that work. There were creators battling conditions a thousand times less woke than today, overcoming the obstacles, publishing one book at a time into what must have seemed like a void. No marketing, no WNDB, no social media communities. If you were born after about 1970 and you tell audiences that you are writing books because you never saw yourself in a book, I believe you. But the books were there and their creators deserve to be acknowledged. It was not the fault of the creators that their books weren't or aren't better known. Their books got close to zero support at every level, from the publishing process right on through to the educational system and the general zeitgeist of the time. It follows, therefore, that it was also not the fault of readers in marginalized communities that they were unaware of these books. And here I'd like to thank Namratha Tripathi, Jamar Perry, David Bowles, Katie Horning, and several others who helped me clarify this point. How could they find books that were absent from bookstores, libraries, classrooms? I think today's creators need to be careful not to inadvertently perpetuate the erasure of that seminal work. Saying something like, I never saw myself in a book, could easily be misapprehended as meaning there were no books about kids like me out there. So a humble suggestion, when you say, I never saw myself in a book, perhaps you might add a line or two acknowledging the shoulders we all stand on. Maybe something like, my education did not include being introduced to the wonderful books by authors like Eloise Greenfield or Donald Cruz. Dr. Debbie Reese offered this language in response to my Twitter post. Societal marginalization of writers that were creating mirrors for me 
meant that I didn't see those mirrors until I was an adult. There are many creators who were working under those conditions. They are not household names, and they should be. Honor our forebears, and then make them proud. Thank you, Linda Sue. I just, I really loved that post, and I thought it was very powerful, and it made me think a lot about all of those writers and creators and illustrators that were doing so much great work, and um, and I thought maybe we could talk about some of them now. I know that you have a list that um, you would like to share, and of course there are so many wonderful creators, and we can't get to all of them now, but I thought we could spend some time talking about um, creators that you've been thinking about and um, hopefully introducing new people to um, the listeners of this podcast. Well, thank you. Um, well, first of all, there is, a, uh, of course, um, the treasure chest that is the internet. And um, there are book lists and blogs and recommendations for just about every kind of marginalized community that you can think of. For example, if you are looking for African-American and black writers, um, the Coretta Scott King Award website is a terrific resource. And it's among the oldest of the diverse creator awards, going all the way back to 1970. So you will definitely find names in there of people who were doing the work, paving the way for what many of us are working on now. Um, a few of my favorites, a lot of, um, one interesting thing is that many um, of the uh, early um, books by African-American creators um, came via poets. Um, poets uh, went from poetry to picture books, um, which is a pretty natural transition. It's in fact part of my own story as a writer. But um, so many people are familiar with Langston Hughes, whose uh, poetry um, became picture books. Um, and I'd also like to offer a few other names. Lucille Clifton is a wonderful poet that many people know through her adult poetry, but she also wrote a wonderful children's books. Um, she did the Everett Anderson books, which I loved. Yes. Those are adorable. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, of course, Virginia Hamilton and Mil Mildred Taylor, both working back in the 70s. Um, Eloise Greenfield has uh, just an incredible career, and I, I feel like she should be a name that every single American knows, uh, and she's still doing terrific work today. Um, Mildred Pitts Walter. Um, so if you, wanted, if you wanted a place to start with African-American children's creators. Oh, and, and uh, in, the, in the blog post, I mentioned Donald Cruz. Mm -hmm. I love his books. Um, also, to add to that, um, Ashley Bryan, who I adore. Of course, the ageless Ashley Bryan. Yes. Did I tell you that I visited him? Have you, have you gone to his place up in Maine? I haven't. I saw him uh, actually down in Houston recently, but I have not been to his place in Maine. Um, you should get up there. I think you would just be totally enchanted. His house is 
like open to the public basically and um, he has so many beautiful things that he has collected all over the world or things that he has that he's found washed up on the shore or he has an incredible collection of heart rocks (laughs) he should definitely be living national treasure yes i agree (laughs) Uh, he's just a wonderful picture book um artist and writer and great well thank you for those a beautiful new book called Blooming Beneath the Sun, based on Christina Rossetti's poems. And uh, he has a memoir coming out, which I am dying to read, which is about his time during World War II. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. Um, I really need to get my hands on that. Do you know when it's coming out? Uh, I think not till fall or perhaps next spring. I can't remember, but it's not out yet. Okay, great. I think I think next spring is what I want to say, but I can't remember for sure. Okay. All right. Uh, So then um, for uh, Native American creators, um, Fred Caboti, whose work I'm not familiar with, but I hope to be soon. But his name came up as an early creator of children's books for uh, that had Native American characters and themes. Virginia Driving Hawks Navy. um, Michael LaCapa. And again, um, there's two sites, which is Dr. Debbie Reese's American Indians in Children's Literature and Cynthia Leading Smith's Sensations website, um, both of which have extensive resources for people interested in more titles um, for uh, Native American creators. Great. Thank you. And we will, again, link to all of this in the show notes. So. And that will be easily accessible to all the listeners out there. So for Asian American creators, um, which of course is an area of of my particular interest and maybe yours as well, um, um, the the ones that I remember from my childhood are uh, two um, Japanese or Japanese American names. So um, Taro Yashima, of course, Mm -hmm. um, who's... Uh, Caldecott book was Crowboy, so um, many people know that book, and he did other books for um, young readers as well. And Yoshiko Uchida, um, not quite as far back as Yoshima, but um, has written um, middle grade novels that uh, that were available in translation. So um, uh, none of uh, these next books were not available to me as a child, but they're the earliest that I could find for Korean Americans, which is Suk Neil Choi, um, who uh, who wrote The Year of Impossible Goodbyes and um, other books featuring uh, Koreans and Korean Americans. And I'm going to say that those were it might have been late 70s or early 80s, so not quite as far back. And Marie G. Lee who writes for adults as Marie Myung-ok Lee. Um, she had um, books for uh, featuring Korean and Korean-American characters, um, as did Hemi Balgasi. Um, Hemi Balgasi, again, not as early as some of these other creators, but the earliest that I could find. And and of course, our our, um, our guiding light to me is Lawrence Yep, who was writing those books, you know, earlier than the rest of us were. Yeah, he's wonderful, and um, really like breaking into a genre that I don't think many marginalized creators were 
writing right. about? You did a lot of fantasy. That's right. Yeah, and that's still a. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's it, there's been a I think a mini explosion lately of of fantasy featuring diverse characters, which is just so terrific. So yes, it's been fantastic yeah. to see all yeah. of that. Um. So, um, Hispanic creators, um, there are um, there are Cora Belpre, for whom the um, ALA Hispanic. I mean, sorry. Um, the uh, yes, the ALA uh, creator award. Yeah, the, the Belpre, Belpre, right? Yeah, and yeah. Alma uh-huh. Floreda, they were both early creators of, of works for young readers, and the Pura Belpre website is another great resource. And um, that one, Pura Belpre, um, there was just a picture book biography about her that Matthew and I have talked about a lot on the podcast, which is fantastic and beautifully illustrated. Oh, great. Then um, I had one other category, which is um, the earliest uh, uh, LGBTQ plus novel that I know of for young readers was John Donovan's I'll Get There, It Better Be Worth the Trip, which was published in 1969. So 1969 is 50 years ago. 50 years ago, there was a young adult novel featuring a gay main character, right? So that's really, <laughs> that's, that's the, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, the courage there, creator, publisher, everybody involved, right? And um, one of the earliest novels I know of to feature a character, um, uh, it's a secondary character, but it is, it features the, um, uh, features a character with AIDS, and that is Earthshine by Teresa Nelson, published in the 80s. But that's still, you know, we're gone 30 years ago now. Right. I have not seen those books. I will have to look right. those up. Well, thank you. And um, Linda Sue, when you were growing up and being exposed to so many different types of books, were there um, specific books that maybe like one or two books that, that you loved growing up that were that was written or created by um, a marginalized author well, or illustrator? Here's one of the problems, um, which is that um, years and years ago, I mean, and we're talking about 50, at least 15 years ago, one of the uh, publications, probably the School Library Journal, asked me to write about the three most influential children's books of my childhood. And that was for such a daunting question that I just said, okay, I'm going to sit down and write the first three that come into my head. And I did that, and I started looking at them and started writing about them, and that essay probably still exists somewhere online, although I haven't looked at it in forever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, brown character, black character, black character. I would have said as a child that that was a value, that was something I'm looking for. But clearly Mm -hmm. that was not a coincidence either. Right. Because of the era that I grew up in, and because I'm so old and decrepit now, (laughs) <laughs> those that's were, a lie. <laughs> that's but a lie. those were all books um, that were not on voices. Okay, they hmm. not. Um, but they were they were the best available at the time to me. You know, in just my normal low, low, regular local good public library. But still, you know, before we need diverse books, before own voices, before Me Too, before any of the social media or anything that went on. So um, I Juan de Barrea. Um, by Elizabeth Borton de Trevino, which is a Newbery-winning book about um, Velasquez, the Spanish painter's black assistant. 
Oh, oh it's just a wonderful story. Um, a book that's co- that was called in my time, What Then Raman by Shirley Aurora, A-R-O-R-A. It's had other titles as it's come out in different editions, but I knew it as What Then Raman, and it's about a little boy in an Indian village who wants to learn to read. Finally, Roosevelt Grady by Louisa Shotwell about a migrant worker child, a child whose family follows the crops and moves from place to place. And more than anything else, he wants a fixed address so that he can have a library card. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, just even today that gives me shivers. So as I said, not own voices, but I think all of them written um, with a great deal of sympathy and familiarity with the uh, communities that are portrayed. Well, this is amazing. And we will put all of these um, in the show notes so um, our listeners have easy access to them. And Linda Sue, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I just think you're just amazing. (laughs) And I think I've learned so much from you. And I adore your books. And for all of you listeners out there, if you don't follow Linda Sue on Twitter, her handle is at Linda Sue Park, no spaces. And she has so many words of wisdom, including her latest tweet about deep pockets for women's clothing, <laughs> which was it's just as important uh, to think about that for women's clothing creators, that pockets should be useful. So... Thank you, Linda Sue, for your time. We really appreciate it. And um, thank you for all the work you do in the Kidlet community. Well, it's definitely a mutual fan club, and I cannot wait for the next Vanderbeekers. Oh, yay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Linda Sue, for all that you shared with us on this recording and also um, the great number of resources and individuals that you've shown a spotlight on for us to consider. Karina and I would now like to take time uh, to highlight a number of the names that were brought up by Linda Sue, but we will link, as mentioned, uh, to each of these individuals in the show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. You can find episode nine of Kidlet these days. And in our show notes, we'll have all of the names listed as well as any, any important links to a company, including the links to the book awards that we're going to be mentioning in a second. The first focus we'll start on is the early creators of African-American children's books, including um, many of those that were honored through the, the Credit Scott King Book Award. But Karina, why don't I let you start off with an individual that you wanted to highlight? Okay, so Linda Sue mentioned Lucille Clifton. Now, Lucille Clifton was Poet Laureate of Maryland from 1979 to 1985. She was twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. She was a National Book Award winner. And um, she's very well known for her adult um, poetry, but she wrote a lot of children's books. And my favorite ones were the Everett Anderson books, which are picture books illustrated by Anne Griffel Coney, as well as a different illustrator, Evelyn Ness. And these stories are so lovely. I think that Everett Anderson is one of the first depictions of an African-American child in a picture book. And Lucille, because of her background in poetry, was just, just the way she writes is so gorgeous. And I think 
the one that touched me the most was this book called Everett Anderson's Goodbye, which is a story about Everett Anderson's father passing away and then Everett going through the five stages of grief. And it's such a great book, especially for children who are dealing with grief themselves, or maybe they know someone who's dealing with grief and going through those stages and learning more about them is it's done so beautifully in this book. So I suggest that to um, all children. And these books are, are not only dealing with grief, but also about joy and independence. And I really, I really love them. So definitely look those up. She also mentions Donald Cruz, who uh, I had a number of his books uh, in, in my house, in my home library. Mm-hmm, me too. But also, I remember them in our school library now, and I remember them in my school library then. I remember them in doctor's offices and dentist's office. Mm-hmm. Really a testament to the reach of his books. He was born in 1938, and Freight Train was a Caldecott honor in 1978. He also received a Caldecott honor for Truck, um, which was one of the ones I remembered, as well as Ten Black Dots. He um, featured Shortcut, uh, Big Mamas, these books that had sort of this iconic graphic style mm-hmm. to the way that he made his books. It was really uh, a different looking book. And I think that that's something that really stuck out to me. His use of color blocking uh, and basic shapes to communicate um, concepts was something that I connected with a lot as a child and to know, or even just be familiar with how far reaching his books were at that time, I think really points to the way that he helped blaze that trail for artists that would come after him. Artists that I think of like, uh, Christian Robinson, who uses those really strong color blocking shapes or Oge Mora, who has such a strong interest in the way colors uh, go together on a page. Yeah, I love his books. We read those a lot, especially when my children were younger. I think they really appeal to younger children who um, are looking at board books, especially like a lot of his books have been published as board books and um, have been really beautiful. All right, so my next Um, Book talk will be for Mildred D. Taylor. She was born in 1943. Right now she's 75. She was awarded the 1977 Newbery Medal for Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which is probably one of my most favorite books of all time. I actually book talked this on season two, episode 12 of Book Riot's recommended podcast, which we will link to in the show notes. And there are a, a lot of books in this series um, that go through the generation of a family living in the South, um, and the family is the Logan family. And for those of you who have read those books, or if you haven't been introduced to them yet, please take a look at them. They're just amazing books. But there is a new one that was just announced that Mildred D. Taylor um, has has finished and it will be published on January 7th, 2020. And January 7th is actually my birthday. So I'm very, very excited <laughs> to get that for my birthday present. And the book is called All the Days Past, All the Days to Come. And it is about Cassie Logan. For those of you who have read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, you'll recognize her as a main character. And in this in this um, final installment, Cassie is a young woman. She's searching for a place in the world. 
And this journey takes her from Toledo to California to law school in Boston and ultimately in the 1960s, home to Mississippi for voter registration. She's witness to the now historic events of the century, the Great Migration North, the rise of the movement preceded and precipitated by the Racist Society of America, and sometimes those violent confrontations that come with that. So I'm very excited about this new book, but if you haven't read the other ones, definitely check them out. I think you would really love them. I wanted to highlight Eloise Greenfield. Um, You bring up Mildred Taylor, who is instrumental in in the way stories are told. And Eloise Greenfield, I think, was doing similar work in picture books as an author of over 40 books, including African Dream, which won the Curtis Scott King Award in 1976. Uh, I also remember the still works of poetry that uh, Eloise is writing and publishing uh, in children's books. Um, but I think about Honey, I Love, which was written by Eloise and illustrated by Jan Spivey Gilchrist, um, that that just depicted the affection of parent and child um, that I think is something that that is much needed representation that that we that I haven't maybe seen as 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 predominantly or as prevalently in on bookshelves as as Eloise was working to make it. There's a new book uh, published from Sourcebooks called Thinker, My Puppy Poet and Me, that I really love that was these poems between a child and his dog uh, that that uh, was really beautifully illustrated by Isan Abdullahi uh, with these um, like watercolor collages. Really pretty book, but um, certainly the work that, that she's been doing in children's publishing is something to take note of. The next creator I would like to talk about is Ashley Bryan. Now he is just a legend. I am just amazed by him. He actually lives up in Maine and a couple years ago, a couple of summers ago, I was able to go visit him and see his studio and it is incredible. He is just an artist at heart. He was born in 1923 and he is 95, and I actually just saw a photo of him um, at ALA, which I was just amazed that he is still traveling <laughs> was... and talking. It's just incredible. So he is the author of many, many well-regarded books and um, highly awarded books. The most recent honor he received was for Freedom Over Me, which is a picture book. It was given the Newbery Honor a couple of years ago. And it's based on the on these slave documents that he came to be in ownership of recently. And he was looking through them and thinking about how he wanted to incorporate it somehow in his work. And he ended up selecting this document called the Fairchild's Appraisement of the State document, and that was from July 5th, 1828, and it listed 11 slaves for sale along with cows, hogs, and cotton, and only the names and prices of the slaves are noted, not their ages, and Ashley Bryan writes in his author's note, My art and writing of the story aimed to bring the slaves alive as human beings. I began by creating painted portraits of these 11 slaves. I studied each one, listening for their voices. And I just love that author's note. I felt like it really helped me understand the the book he was writing. And in the book, it talks about 
um, each person as an individual and their their hopes and dreams in the book. And I thought it was just such a beautiful way of um, making it personal to the reader. I read this book a lot to my children, and we've had a lot of conversations about it. So if if you haven't seen that book yet, definitely pick it up. It's called Freedom Over Me by Ashley Bryan. Beautiful. Well, I, I want to make sure that we are able to highlight as many books as we can, as much as I know that you and I are just hitting these. It sounds like we're hitting these moments of memory from our childhood or from our adult life that are really resonating deep and I I don't want to I don't want to rush us ahead but I know we want to talk about more people so if I can turn us turn our attention to indigenous voices um I want to um make sure that we link to the American Indian Youth Literature Award um which is an award given every other year in children's literature, but also to the work that Linda Sue pointed us to of Dr. Debbie Reese, who has a blog called American Indians in Children's Literature. Dr. Reese has been um, someone that I've looked to, and I think many, many folks have looked to uh, for advocacy for how um, indigenous individuals are represented in children's literature as well as the state of publishing and and how representation is looking. She also is the co-author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People uh, by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And um, that the the original book, The Indigenous People's History of the United States, um, is, is being adapted by Jean Mendoza and Debbie Reese. So that'll be something that will come out in a couple months from now. But um, certainly her blog is a great place to go uh, for recommendations of of current and um, also past and beloved books written by uh, Indigenous authors uh, depicting Indigenous heritage and Indigenous life. Yes, I refer to her blog all the time. And I often look at it just to see what she's thinking about, new books that have come out. I really respect her and all of the all the ways she thinks about how Indigenous people are represented in children's books. One of the books that I really loved um, by an author that Linda Sue had mentioned was um, an author named Virginia Driving Hawks Navy. She was born in 1933, and she wrote many, many books about Native tribes, including the Cherokees, the Sioux, and there's one book that I really loved called The Christmas Coat, Memories of My Sioux Childhood, and it's about this young girl, Virginia, and her coat is too small, and she lives in South Dakota, so as you know, in the winter, it gets very, very cold, and as Christmas approaches, all the children on the reservation are looking forward to receiving boxes full of clothing sent by congregations in the East, and Virginia spots a beautiful gray fur coat and has her eyes on it and can't wait to select that one but then it gets selected by someone else so it's a really touching story it's beautifully illustrated and i highly recommend it well and i think too about um jingle dancer by cynthia lydic smith which is a book that that dr reese uh has mentioned a number of times before but also that cynthia lydic smith has a really wonderful blog as well for indigenous representation, as well as representation of uh, diverse voices on her Sensations website that we'll be sure to link to. Um, But why don't we turn next to Asian American creators? 
Uh, Karina, do you want to share the first individual? Sure. So Linda Sue had brought up someone named Yoshika Uchida. She was born in 1921, and she wrote a lot of middle grade books. One of them was called Journey to Topaz. Another one was called Picture Bride. Another one, The Bracelet, and another one, A Jar of Dreams. And her books deal primarily with Japanese-American impressions of major historical events, including World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II, and the racism endured by Japanese-Americans during those years. I have not read her yet, but reading about those books and um, the summaries of them have really made me interested in picking them up. So we'll link to those books in the show notes. That was the way I felt too about her mentioning Marie G. Lee, uh, who wrote, if it hadn't been for Yoon Jun, uh, in which this, this book reading the synopsis um, is about a 12 year old Alice Larson, who was adopted as a baby and she's of Korean heritage, but feels 100% American. And then Yoon Jun, a Korean immigrant, moves to her small Minnesota town and Alice's parents start pressuring her to make friends with the strange new boy as a way to get in touch with her heritage. Now Alice resists uh, because what would her friends think? Anyway, she's American, but when she and Yoon Jun are assigned to work together on a school project, she learns about Korea land, about doing the right thing, about... um, what it what Korea is to someone who uh, has just come from Korea, and what I think from what I deduce from this book, what what it means to to be proud of who you are and where you come from. Yeah, that one sounded really great. Should we go on to Latinx creators? Sure, I think okay. that's great. <laughs> We're running out of time. All right, we are. we're always running out of time. Okay, so. Um, as we've talked about before in the show, Pura Belpre um, was a very influential person. Um, she was a librarian at the New York Public Library, and the Belpre Award given by the American Library Association is named after her. We will link to that in the show notes. And um, there was one creator that Linda Sue had mentioned, Alma Flor Ada. She, was, um, her, she had a chapter book called My Name is Maria Isabel, and I don't think Matthew... You didn't. You hadn't read this. I had not read that one. No. Right. I have. Although seen I am it, familiar it, with Alma Floriana. Yes. So I haven't read that chapter book either, but I have seen. It. I think my my kids have read it, but um, it sounds like an amazing book, and it's about a girl who is new at a school, and her teacher won't call her by her real name, saying that we already have two Marias in this class. And why don't we call you Mary instead? And Maria Isabel has been named for her papa's mother and her Puerto Rican grandmother. So she sort of has to um, find a way to talk about that with her teacher and and show how important her name is. And I love that. And I think we've seen a lot of that in children's books recently about names and how important they are. So... So that chapter book, definitely take a look at it. So we, I think, need to wrap up and 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 point everyone again back to 
our show notes at bookriot.com slash listen for you to find episode nine of Kill It These Days and find um, more information about all of those individuals that Linda Sue Park mentioned. Certainly this is just a start on the list, and we would love to hear um, those books and those authors and illustrators who maybe had an influence on you as a child or perhaps what the book that they wrote was the first time that you saw yourself in a in a children's book. Uh, we want to hear that. So you can reach out to us at bookriot.com or at, I'm sorry, at killitthesedays at bookriot.com. Send us an email or find us on social media and let us know about those books or about other ideas you have for shows. Thanks for joining us. As always, we would love your feedback on this podcast and always appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts. When you do that, you also help other people find us. You can find me, Karina Yan Glazer, on Twitter at Karina Yan Glazer, and on Instagram at Karina is reading and writing. And you can find me, Matthew Winner, on Twitter at Matthew Winner. As I mentioned, if you have a story idea, reach out to us on social media or email us at kidlitthesedays at bookriot.com. We would love to hear what you're thinking about and what you'd like to see next on the show. May your coming days be storied, and may those good stories keep on coming. <laughs>